0: You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God, and we pray that this message helps you do just that. I am glad you're here at 1215, the most anointed service that we have, second week in a row. I'm thrilled that you're here. So, let me, uh, I got to tell you, if you've been around Calvary, you've probably heard this story before, but you haven't heard the second part. So I've got to tell you the first part so that the second part makes sense. So anyway, my wife and I met, uh, it was December 5th, 1992, and uh, it was a chance meeting. We both went to, uh, we had, both had a mutual friend that was throwing a party, and so we w- both went to this guy's house. First time we had ever been there. We've never been there since. And so it was just like that one moment where we met, and um, <clears throat> I was in a band. And uh, my friend invited me over because he had just bought a guitar. It was a Gibson Les Paul, and um, he wanted me to come over and try it out. So I picked up the guitar at this party and started playing. Naturally, a crowd began to form. And, uh, <laughs> so, and then um, this really pretty girl uh, walked away and was not impressed by me at all. And uh, she walked to the other side of the room and just sat down. So I put the guitar down. I sat next to her and, uh, and introduced myself. And <clears throat> we started talking and she was telling me about how she just finished her first semester of college. She was on a scholarship at FAU and just how much uh, she loved school. And then she decided that she's like, I'm gonna ask this musician a question that I know he's gonna flunk out at. And she's like, do you like school? Now, here's what you got to know about me. I had just finished my fifth year of high school. And so I had had just graduated, but I had gone to five years of high school and both semesters of summer school every year. And so my answer was, do I like school? I love school. In fact, I go to school more than anyone I know. And uh, she was so taken back, like, oh, I totally misjudged him. And uh, now... Uh, It is important for me to tell you that uh, probably about six months later, I became a Christian. A few years later, I I graduated. I got my undergrad in theology with a 3.96 GPA. And uh, thank you. I appreciate that. (coughs) And right now, I'm three classes away from getting a master's degree in theology where I have a perfect 4.0. Thank you. And I've already been invited to become an adjunct professor once I graduate. And uh, so, wow, well, three claps in a row. I appreciate that. And uh, I also want well, you to know my mom is proud of me too. Anyway, so, and <laughs> so. Now, but I think it's important for you to know that because the last thing you want to hear is like, hey, did your pastor go to school? Yeah, but he like just barely made it. And uh, they had to give him some grace to let him graduate. No, I did, I did pretty well. But anyway, but when my wife tells the story, uh, they'll say she'll say, "Yeah, Bob and I, we started our relationship, and it was all built on a bunch of his lies." And uh, and I and I correct her, and I'll say, "Honey, it wasn't a lie; it was a prophecy." And because uh, I did end up loving school so much, I spent four years running a school before I uh, running a college before I came here to start Calvary. Now I tell you this because <clears throat> uh, my daughter Mia, who by the way turns 16 years old tomorrow, if you can believe that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I don't even know how this happened. Uh, I mean, like, this girl was born yesterday, and now she's talking to me about driving a car. And I'm like, driving a car? Don't you use have like, a tricycle? You know, anyway. So, anyway. <clears throat> but Mia has always loved... I mean, she's always asking me to tell her stories, but um, she's always loved the story of how Carrie and I met. She asks, used to ask to hear about... Er, er, when we would kind of do the... Nighttime ritual of, you know, putting the kids to bed and all that. She'd say, Dad, can you just tell me the story of how you and mom met? I mean, she just loves the story. But it was probably about age nine that she figured out, it dawned on her that I lied to her mom <clears throat> to get her to go out with me. And so uh, I remember when she figured that out, I got home one day and she was so mad. And so she, I just couldn't do anything right. So I sit, we sit down to eat dinner and Mia is asking everyone, oh, what can I get you, uh, what do you want to drink with dinner? So I just said, oh, I'll have water, please. And she's like, oh, are you sure you like water? Are you lying to me just like you lied to our mom when, when, when you met her? And, um, and you know, I'm like, <laughs> okay, all right. So I move on and we're eating dinner and Carrie asking me about my day. It was really good. I got a lot done. And she's like, mom, do you really believe he had a good day or is this another one of his lies, like the day that he met you and lied about school? And, uh, and then, like I said, we're getting ready for bed and, and, uh, you know, we pray for the kids and, and I'm like, all right, mama, I love you. Good night. She's like, do you love me? Or is this another one of your lies? Like the day that you met my, my mom. And I'm like, okay, listen to me. I wasn't a Christian. I didn't become a Christian until six months after I met your mom. So yes, I lied, but I didn't know any better. So come on. And she's like, okay, dad, I, I, I under, I, I understand. Or maybe this is another one of your lies, like the day that you met my mom. And so now prophecies are funny things because sometimes they don't make sense when you hear them. And it's only after the fact that they really come into focus. And you're like, oh, man, now I really understand what was taking place. So we find ourselves in message if you can believe this message number 37 in the gospel of Matthew where we are in the section that theologians call the Olivet discourse and we are talking about bible prophecy and today we're talking about Jesus is going to introduce uh, a period of time that is called the great tribulation now before we get into this let me give a little bit of clarity as we as we as we go in to give the difference between Uh, tribulation maybe we could say tribulation with a lowercase t and then the great tribulation with a capital t because sometimes a lot of christians be like man i'm going through great tribulation you know bills are due people are problematic you know whatever and it's like well that might be tribulation and every and here's how you know the difference every believer experiences tribulation trials difficulties challenges they're directed at believers and originated from satan and that's happened throughout history The great tribulation is the wrath of God that is directed towards an unbelieving world for a particular period of time, uh, seven years in the final days. So when Jesus says in John chapter 16, as you'll see in your notes, these things, uh, I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. He's talking about just general tribulation that people experience, problems that people experience. When Jesus says in the passage that we're going to read in a moment, that there will be a time of great tribulation, such as never been since the beginning of the world, no, nor ever shall be. You know, this is a special time. Nothing has ever been like it, and nothing will ever be like it. Now, this is a seven-year period that is described in the book of Revelation from chapters 6 through 19. It is a final seven-year period. Now, if I can back up for just a second, if you were with us a few weeks ago when we taught Matthew chapter 21, we talked about how <clears throat> uh, there was, in the book of Daniel, there's this prophecy in chapter 9 that the angel, he was fasting, he da- gives Daniel's prophecy that there are 77s. That is, God's redemptive program is going to happen in these 77 year periods or 493 years. And we also know as we read them, as it's divided up in in Daniel 9, that the first 483 years are grouped together from the, the command to go forth and rebuild Jerusalem, and we know when that was, March 14th, 445, Uh, B.C. in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2, that the command was given to go rebuild Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince, which was April 6, 32 A.D. That was the exact day, and that's the day Jesus presented himself as the Messiah. But as we mentioned in that message a few weeks ago, one seven-year period remains, and this is the seven-year period that Jesus is going to be speaking about. And now here is uh, that seven-year period is really divided into two. It's two, three-and-a-half-year periods because there is a scene that happens that divides the two. And one of the things that's important to note is for these seven years, and if you want to read Revelation, you can just, you know, you got to just kind of understand a few things. But um, you'll see that there's all this judgment that's happening throughout the world. But the thing that's important to note is that in Israel, things are going fairly well. And so until about halfway through this tribulation period, when peace treaties get broken, someone steps into, and and this is a guy that goes by many names, he's got 33 different names in the Bible, but the most uh, famous one is Antichrist, and he's going to step into the rebuilt temple and desecrate it. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But in Daniel chapter 9, it says it like this, this one passage, 70 weeks, we talked about that are determined for your people, that is, Daniel's people were the Jews, your holy city, your holy city is Jerusalem. And look what he says, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Those are the three things that Jesus did in his first coming. Then to bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. This is what Jesus does in his second coming. Now, and as we see the world headed into the conditions that Jesus talked about and spoke about as his return listen while sometimes people are fearful i I think for us it should bring us great peace for several reasons but one is is that none of this is catching god by surprise he knows exactly what's going to happen he's in control of what happens because he told us it was going to happen beforehand so we're going to start in verse 15 remember last time jesus said that there would be uh you know when they said what are the what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus says, let no one deceive you, that there's going to be a time of deception. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be, uh, you know, nation against nation. We, we talked about that, that, that that word is ethnos. There's going to be ethnic tension. There's going to be uh, war, pestilence, plagues, all kinds of things. And that these would be the beginning of sorrows. Well, he says this, and now in verse 15, which is where we pick up, therefore, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. And then Matthew gives this little parenthetical comment. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. If you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that we're going to look at. um, And I'm going to tell you right now, as I've talked to people in the first two services, they've been like, Pastor, this one was heavy. So just prepare yourself emotionally. This one's heavy. All right. So... Three things that we're going to talk about that Jesus mentions. The first thing is this. The Great Tribulation brings a new Jewish temple. Now, there's something that I shared last week, and I asked you to put a tack in it, and that we were going to deal with it today. And it was about when Jesus said that, uh, when they said, they showed him all the buildings of the temple, and Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another. And the understanding was not only was the temple going to be destroyed, but it was a description of how the temple was going to be destroyed. So let me give you a little bit of the the history on that so you understand. Uh, The Jews rebelled against their Roman oppressors in 66 AD. And Nero, who was the Roman emperor at the time, ordered a general whose name was Vespasian to put down the insurrection. About two years into the campaign, Nero dies. The emperor dies. Vespasian is called back to Rome to become uh, the new Roman emperor. So Vespasian now orders his son to go to Jerusalem. Uh, His son's name is Titus and uh, the Roman 10th Legion to end the conflict. So four years after it starts on August 30th, 70 AD, Roman soldiers set fire to the temple. Now, one of the things you have to understand is that the inside of the temple was encased in gold. And you know what happens when you start putting fire on gold? It starts melting, and it starts melting into the cracks of these giant stones. And so Roman soldiers who get paid partially in the plunder that they're able to keep from these campaigns, they push every stone aside and literally dismantle the temple brick by brick to get the gold that now was settling in between these giant stones. And if you come with us to Israel in... Uh, November, you'll be able, we'll stand on the Temple Mount, and you will see the size of these stones. I mean, they're, they're massive. And so uh, the fact that, in fact, if you go, and you'll even see in the Kidron Valley, some of the stones are still there that were pushed off the temple to get to the gold. But the Romans destroyed the temple, and uh, the Jewish calendar is what's called the 9th of Av. And that happens to be the same day, I mentioned this last week, that the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, except it was uh, destroyed in the 9th of Av in 586 B.C. So close to 2,000 years, the Jews have not had a temple to worship in. But Jesus says there will be a temple. Now, in Israel, there is a group that's called the Temple Institute right now. And uh, I was able to spend a couple of hours with them when I was in Israel uh, about 20 years ago. And they are in the process of building all of the instruments, clothing, Uh, everything that's needed for temple worship because they are convinced that the temple is going to be rebuilt. So everything, all the garments for the high priest, and you can look this up. You can see their website and see a lot of stuff they've done. Uh, But all the garments, uh, they've built the all solid gold menorah uh, that's going to be in the holy place. They've built that. The only thing that they have not built is the Ark of the Covenant because uh, they believe it's going to be found. There are some in Israel who say they know exactly where it is, but... Jesus mentions, he opens this, he says, in light of everything that's going to happen, right? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and then Matthew gives this parenthetical statement that says, let the reader understand. What is the thing that we have to understand? That there is something in history that's pointing to something that's going to take place in the future that Jesus is referencing. So let me give you the prophecy that he's referring to, that Jesus is referring to, and then I'll give you some of the background. So here's what it says in Daniel. It says, And his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. In 167, well, you know what? Let me go back a little further. <clears throat> in, um, when Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world at the time uh, and, and expanded the Greek Empire, uh, I mean from Greece uh, practically to India, um, he, when he died, he, uh, he had no heirs, he died in Babylon weeping, uh, drunk, saying There's no more, there are no more kingdoms to conquer. Well, because he had no heirs, on his deathbed, his four generals stood around him, and they said, to whom do you give the kingdom? And Alexander says the most strange statement. He just says, give it to the strong. That was of his last words. And he dies. And now these four guys look at each other like, oh, it's on. And uh, for the next 200 years, they fight, these, these four groups keep fighting. And um, now, there, in 167, there's this guy who's part of a group called the Seleucids Uh, named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes is trying to conquer all of Alexander's uh, empire, which the other guys are trying to do, but he conquers Jerusalem. And he makes the practicing of Judaism illegal. Uh, He confiscates all Jewish money. He forbids the teaching of the Torah. And uh, his worst act, and you'll never forget the date, uh, on December 25th, 167 BC, he defiles the temple by setting up an idol and then sacrificing a pig in the temple. Uh, Antiochus had coins. I mean, this guy was just totally delusional. He had coins minted that said in in the Greek language, Antiochus Theos Epiphany, which means Antiochus, the God made manifest. And so now here's how the whole thing gets resolved is um, there's this priest, this older priest named Mattathias ben Yohanan and uh, he is ordered by a Greek soldier to offer this unclean sacrifice to a pagan god in the temple. He refuses. There's another priest who says okay and does it. Well, Mattathias is upset by that, so he kills the priest who desecrates the temple, and he kills the Greek soldier who ordered uh, it to be done. He retreats to the wilderness and shortly after dies. His son Judah takes up the fight, and the people call him Maccabee, which is a phrase that means the hammer. And if we can speak frankly as far as nicknames go, the hammer is a great nickname. It's like the making of a movie, right? The hammer. When he shows up, you're nailed, right? I mean, that's it's like the movie writes itself, right? Anyway, I'm still working on it. But now, so the hammer Um, in, in three years after this happens, the Antiochus situation, three years to the day, uh, Judah and his group, which are now called the Maccabeans or the little hammers that are all around them. Uh, they cleanse the temple. They beat back Antiochus's troops. They rid the temple of all the pagan idols. He rides into Jerusalem and people are waving palm branches, shouting Hosanna in the streets as he rode by. And that should sound vaguely familiar. And, um, they go to rededicate the temple, and some of you know this part of the story is that when they go to rededicate the temple, there's only one day's worth of oil to light the menorah. And by Jewish law, the flame of the menorah can only be lit using a specially prepared olive oil that takes a week to press. They light the one day, they go to rededicate the temple, they light it the first day knowing it's not going to last, but th- that Oil for one day lasts eight days until new oil can be made, which is what's celebrated at Hanukkah, or what's also what's called the Feast of Dedication. Now, what people sometimes don't know is that uh, Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication. In John chapter ten, it tells us now was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's port. so he's there to celebrate this rededication of. The temple, But the defiling of the temple is the thing that Jesus is saying, remember the abomination, what Antiochus did? When you see that happen in the future, you know that which once again is what Antichrist will do. You'll see this in Revelation chapter 11 and um, that we know that this is what's going uh, to take place. And, and once again, he may, you know, this is the guy that has all the answers. He makes peace and uh, with many with Israel's enemies. But what Jesus says, when this guy sh- starts doing the Antiochus type stuff and really reveals the mask and shows who he really is, uh, that's when Jesus says, run. That's when it gets really bad for Israel. He says, run. D- if, you're, if you're on the rooftop, don't go down to get some extra clothes. Just get out of there because it's going be, to be serious. Now, here, let me kind of back up a little bit. What's the point of, of all of this? I mean, what is the point of even predictive prophecy and why God shares it and why is it important for us and why should it matter to us because God uses the canvas of history to prove that we can trust him and once again and then our past experiences become part of that to prove that we can trust him when my daughter Livy uh who's now 11 when she was about three she you're familiar with the phrase hangry you know what I'm talking about when I say hangry? People that are hungry, and, and then they go into a rage all at the same time because they're angry. Well, Livy, she was really young. I mean, it was it was like that. And uh, she would, like, forget all words, and she would get so upset, and, and then she would sit, try to explain what she wanted to eat. And, like, I remember one day, um, it was, I think, I think it was Thanksgiving, and so we had all this food, and she's like, I don't want that. She didn't want turkey, and I think I had made brisket. She didn't want that. She's like, I want circle meat. And now, circle meat is not part of my lexicon. So I don't, I, okay. And and so now, she's 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 trying to explain it. She's very upset. And this is like a life or death version of charades, because you're trying to figure out what circle meat is. turns out circle meat is a burger. But who in the world would have known that? There's so much screaming and crying, and Livy was upset too. And... Um, Really? Okay. I'm going to move on. And uh, I tried that joke three times and it didn't land any times. but just I should get points for commitment. Um, so anyway, so one Sunday after church and I'll say in Libby's favor, she was here all day. We were going to go to lunch and the kids were making suggestions as to where we should go to lunch after church. So we decide we're going to go to a uh, pincho factory, which by the way, if you ever gone, it's a pretty legit place, except for the fact that they serve Pepsi, which is an abomination. So anyway, um, well, my daughter, Livy gets upset. She's hungry and she doesn't want to go. I don't want to go to Pincho. I want to go to the place that has the sign over the door. And it's like, oh no, here we go. And she's like, no, I don't want to go under the sign above the door. And, and I'm like, okay, what does the sign say? She's like, I'm three. I don't know how to read. And I'm like, well, that's a fair point. And so Now we're trying to, and then, you know, my wife, she's just had it with her attitude. She's like, Are you paying when we go to lunch? No? Then we decide. I've never been prouder of that woman than I was that day. And so, anyway, we get to Pincho, we get out of the car, and we're about to walk in. Livy's got a bad attitude, and then she she looks and she's like, Oh, this is the place I wanted to go. And I'm like, This is Pincho! And uh, listen, this is why parents get old. (laughs) This right here, this madness is why parents get old. You know you were young once. I don't know if you know that. It's hard, you can't even remember anymore. You were young once and then you made this decision. We should procreate. We should have children. And then you know what happened? You started aging in dog years. And now you're like, what's my last name again? You know, you got all this. You ever meet people that don't have children? They're like in their 70s. It's hard because they're like running marathons, triathlons, <laughs> Ironmans. They're doing all this stuff. And it's like, wow, you don't look a day over 30. You're like, wow, I never had children. Ah, oh, that's it. That's what I, I get it now. So anyway, now, but let me say this. Sometimes we miss out. Like we have these pincho moments where it's like, I want, I want to go this, and I don't know how to say it, and I don't know how to get there. Sometimes we miss out on so much because we don't trust God with our future because somehow we think he's not totally apprised of our situation. And I'm telling you that he understands our situation better than we do. And it's only to the level that we trust him is to the degree that we experience triumph in our lives. That's why in Isaiah 46, uh, God just kind of states who he is. He says, I am God. There's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. And this is why Bible prophecy is so powerful. Because it's one of the ways that God proves his power and reveals his ability to transform a situation by calling it before it even happens. And and once again, and we're like, well, I don't know. But it's the place where we ultimately want to go. But once again, we don't have the words to put how to say it and how to get there well. Jesus goes on in verse 29. Here's what he says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together from his elect, from the, from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away if you pause there and give me your attention second thing i want to tell you is that the great tribulation brings israel to the center now there's people who have criticized christians who believe that jesus is coming back and take it seriously like and they'll say didn't every generation think that they were living in the last days and that's probably true The problem is not every generation could say Jesus could come back today. And the reason is, quite simply, because certain Bible prophecies hadn't been fulfilled at the time. If you and I were believers living 500 years ago, we couldn't have said, man, Jesus could come back today. Why? Because Israel did not exist as a nation. And Israel is the key to Bible prophecy. All of Bible prophecy unanimously speaks of Israel as a nation. And that did not happen From the diaspora in 70 AD until May of 1948, when Israel was given its independence. After the horrors of World War II and Nazi Germany, the world community understood that this never would have happened if Israel had had their own homeland. And so Israel was given their homeland in fulfillment of, once again, this incredible prophecy that God gives in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. In fact, I put it in the notes for you. For This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and in the ravines and the settlements of the land. As I mentioned before, 70 A.D. marks what is called the diaspora or the scattering, the time when Jews were scattered throughout all the earth. What's amazing to me is that up until 2010, there were more Jews living in the United States than were living in Israel. Today, there are more Jews living in Israel than anywhere else. And it is incredible to watch what the, the thing that God says through Ezekiel would happen, has, is happening that there is this sense of calling over the last hundred years that Jews have seen, like, I need to drop what I'm doing and where I'm living and go back to Israel. And uh, once again, that had not happened in previous generations. In 1918, there were 85,000 Jewish people living in what is now called Israel. Today, there are close to 8 million Jews living in Israel, more than anywhere else. In 1948, when Israel was given its independence, only 6% of Jews in the world lived in Israel. Today, 47% do. And this is incredible because no group of people in the world, in the history of the world, has ever gone more than three centuries without a homeland and been able to maintain their national identity. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you met a Moabite? Probably not. Or how about a Hittite? Or a Canaanite? Or an Uptite? Probably met a few of those. but, uh, But listen, but you've probably met someone who's Egyptian. Why? Because they have... They had a homeland while the others didn't. And while they may have lasted a generation or two, by the third generation, they were gone because they did not have a homeland to maintain their national identity. Israel went 1,900 years without a homeland and kept their national identity. Why? So what happens now? Israel is in the land. The Jews are returning to Israel. Israel is flourishing and prospering in the land given to them by God. They are the number one exporter of fruits and vegetables in all of uh, Europe. They are the Silicon Valley of the Middle East with their technological innovations. And throughout the Bible, the symbol for Israel is the fig tree. And Jesus says, When you see the fig tree blossoming, when you see Israel in their land, bearing fruit, prospering, and growing, he says, This, I'm coming back. And listen. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say it this way. It's in your notes. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. If you've ever made the drive from here to Orlando to take your kids to Disney World, the three-hour drive, or if your kids are young, the six-hour drive with the 25 bathroom breaks, you'll know this, there aren't a lot of signs for Disney World in Broward County. Not very many signs in Palm Beach. You get to Martin County, you might see one. Then we get close to something called Yeehaw Junction, which no one really knows what that is. That's why we just keep going. But as you get closer to Orlando, you know what you find? That the number of signs increase, the, the size of the signs increase. Because as you get closer, the stronger the frequency and the intensity of the signs. And my friends, the same thing is true with the return of Jesus. The closer that we get, the signs of his coming increase in frequency and intensity. And Israel is just one sign. Jesus also says, and this is in the next section in verse 36 to 44, where he talks about that his return, it would be like the days of Noah. Now, uh, I don't have time to go into this, so I'm going to punt uh, until next week that section because I really, there's four markers that mark the days of Noah that we can see parallel in our world. And um, I, I'm gonna open with this because really, it matches with, uh, it lines up with what the parable that Jesus tells in chapter 25 and so we'll cover that next time but what I want to cover is the parable that he tells in light of all of this he closes with this parable for his disciples in verse 45 here's what we read he says who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season blessed is that servant whom his master when he comes will find so doing assuredly I say to you he'll make him ruler over all of his goods But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour when he's not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the hypocrites and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now if you pause there, give me your attention. Last thing that I want to tell you and that is that the great tribulation brings godly preparation. Before we close, I want to talk about something that I think is really important is that sometimes Christians get nervous when they hear about end times and all of this and how bad things are going to get. And they start thinking about, how am I going to survive that? And how am I going to survive the Great Tribulation? Do I need to start stockpiling stuff? Or if you're Cuban, you're like, man, how many thousands of Vienna sausages can I fit in my garage? And, uh, or as we we call them. And, um, and so now the, here's the good news is that Christians aren't going to be in the Tribulation. There's this wonderful thing that's called the rapture of the church that's going to happen before that. And it's what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4, that those who are alive are are going to be caught up. That's the word rapture means, caught up before this time of tribulation. And that's why at the end, and I put it in your notes, Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Because how much comfort would it be for him to say, hey, man, you're going to endure seven years of hell on earth. But then Jesus, that's not a lot. That's not great news. The comfort is knowing that we're not going to be around when this happens. Why? Because as we said in the beginning, the great tribulation is God's wrath that's being poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world for this period of seven years. Why not on believers? In 1 Thessalonians 5, right after this passage that I mentioned that's in your notes, Paul says, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Why has he not appointed us to wrath? Because Jesus took God's wrath in our place when he died for us. Now, we'll talk more about this next week, but the teaching on the end times should give us comfort to know that God is 100% in control of the future. And because of it, it should exhort us to live godly lives. That's why Jesus gives us the exhortation at the end. He's like, who do you want to be? Do you want to be the one servant that's wise and faithful? And when the master returns, he gives them this incredible inheritance. And we'll talk about that. Jesus is going to expound on that idea next week. Or we can be like the evil servant. And if you want to circle that word evil, it literally is this word, kakos, K-A-K-O-S. And it refers to something that was once good, but then turned evil, like something that was fresh, but then spoiled. And here's, here's the thing. The servants had no idea when the master was returning. Our master told us times and seasons, the condition of the world at his return. And even people who aren't Christians see where history is moving in 1947 a group of scientists created what was called the doomsday clock they this group takes into account conf- all the conflict threats capacity for human annihilation into account and then they set the clock a certain amount of time away from midnight which would be midnight would be total uh, humanity's total destruction this started in 1947. They set the clock at seven minutes to midnight. This was right after World War II and the beginning of the Cold War between the United States and the USSR. The furthest back it's ever gotten was 11 minutes to midnight, which was in 1990, 1991, right after the fall of the Berlin Wall and right after the fall of the Soviet Union. The closest it ever got was in 1953. It was the height of the cold war the nuclear arms race was in full speed and the united states had tested the first hydrogen bomb and the doomsday clock was set at two minutes to midnight that was 70 years ago 1953 in 2018 they released a report based on uncertainty with north korea discord between the u.s and russia Buildup of nuclear weapons in India and Pakistan, and the uncertainty with Iran and their nuclear ambitions—they set the clock for the first time in, uh, like I said, 65 years. They set it back to two minutes to midnight. All of this was pre-pandemic. On Tuesday of this week, the they unveiled the new doomsday clock for 2023, and it was set at 90 seconds to midnight. It was the it is the closest that it has ever been to midnight since they started this. Now. Um, almost 80 years ago. And And here's my point. If people who don't know God can discern the signs of the times and where human history is headed, then certainly, as God's people, we should be able to know the times that we're living in, understand what God has said about the times that we're living in, and be able to live accordingly. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that. That truth and that promise that you haven't left history unattended. You haven't left the future into our hands exclusively. Instead, Lord, you have a plan for the future. And that plan involves you returning, your son establishing his kingdom, and your kids ruling and reigning with you. God, help us to understand that and may that reality impact the decisions that we make today and tomorrow and the next day because we truly believe you're coming back and it a great and glorious day it will be when it happens and we pray it in Jesus name and everybody said amen thanks for listening to today's podcast if today you made a decision to follow Jesus congratulations It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.